Last week of Covenant and Kingdom. So we're taking it all the way down. This is week number 20. Um, I hope you guys have enjoyed this class. It's been probably my favorite class that I've ever done that I've ever had to teach. Doesn't feel like it's been 20 weeks. It does. I know. Well, because it goes back to last fall. We did 10 weeks in the fall, 10 weeks in the spring. Yes. No. (laughs) Both stages. Um, But yes, we're going to wrap up tonight, so let me pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you once more for gathering your people together. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is to be in the Word. Lord, you have been so gracious in revealing to us your character, your plan. And Lord, we are just so honored to be a part of your plan in history. And I just pray that you would give us minds and hearts to uh, understand and perceive our role in creation, Lord, the reason why you've called us to yourself. And Lord, I pray that you would just be building us up on a firm foundation and helping us, Lord, to be growing in faith and in wisdom and in understanding and then to make that actionable and to actually go forth and do what you've called us to do uh, according to our covenant relationship with you. God, please bless this evening and I pray that it would just be fruitful for all of us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... So we, you know, taking this back all the way to the very beginning, we've been tracking the story of Scripture, um, God's plan in history. And I'm going to read tonight from Revelation 11. So we began in the beginning, in the garden, in Genesis, with Adam at creation as king over creation. And we're closing it out tonight with Christ as, once again, the king over creation in the new covenant order. And tonight we're going to talk about the kingdom of God, which really is, more than anything, the theme, the message, the point, really, of Scripture. Um, So we're going to start just by reading Revelation 11, beginning in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. That's a portion of John's vision and revelation. And we're not like going to dive into the interpretation of Revelation, but mostly I just want to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about tonight, which is the kingdom of God, the reign of Christ. Um, Again, we've been, you know, stretching back to the beginning of this class. The very first class we read from Hebrews, and Hebrews is this long explanation, really, of the new covenant. It is, you know, the the um, a, a whole discourse really on the new covenant and how it came about from the old and all the rest of it. And towards the climax of that epistle, he says that you know he's writing this so that we might have full assurance of faith. And that's been the main hope of this class is to ground our understanding of our relationship to God on the covenant, the certainty of God's covenant. That's what gives us assurance, is knowing that our salvation, our standing before God, and God's purposes in history don't depend on 
any works that we do, any feelings that we have, any ideas that we have or affections. In the covenant, yes, we're given a new heart with new affections and new feelings and, and new works and things like that. But our standing before God rests entirely on the covenant of Christ. And so that's been the you know hope of trying to really bolster our faith, give us a deeper understanding of Scripture and its themes. And like I said, the main theme of Scripture is the kingdom. And if you really want to boil down all of history, all of creation, all of Scripture and you know everything else for all of time, God's eternal purpose boiled down to his to its most basic is to give his son a kingdom that is the plan of god to give to his only begotten son a kingdom and so this we track it throughout scripture we see the uh, and really the progression of history in total is the establishment of god's kingdom on earth with the son reigning as the king. And so everything in scripture builds toward this ultimate reality. And then all of history continues to move forward to this culmination of Christ's kingdom. So everything is moving in that direction. Everything serves the purpose of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, God's son receiving a kingdom. And that's ultimately what the revelation of scripture is all about. It's not ultimately about God um, saving his redeemed. It's not ultimately about us being the redeemed people by God and for God. The, the purpose of scripture, the ultimate point of the whole thing is the establishment of the kingdom and is the glory of the king and then our salvation our personal salvation the elect we fit in we you know that's obviously a prominent theme in scripture but we fit in in that broader context that scripture is about god establishing his kingdom for the glory of his son and then we fit into that we play a role in that but it's not about us and our salvation it's about god and what he's doing in creation and so, as I mentioned, because of the realities of the covenant and what God is doing and how God is building and establishing his kingdom, we have assurance of faith as we look back at what God did for us in Christ in history, right? We can look back at Jesus' historical death and resurrection and then the apostolic explanation of what all that means. We can look back at his faithfulness to the old covenant people, and that gives us assurance of our standing before God. So we can look back and say, yes, I know that I am righteous before God because of the covenant realities. Also, though, it gives us assurance looking forward because we know that God's ultimate purpose is to bring his son's kingdom to consummation, to ultimately establish the kingdom completely. And so we can have faith looking forward because we know that God is not going to fail to bring this about because, once again, it rests on the foundation of the covenant. <coughs> These things are rooted in covenant realities. Does that make sense? Okay. One other thing we've talked about in this class is that God establishes dominions and kingdoms through covenant. That's the way that God, you know, delegates authority is by way of covenant. Um, the covenants of scripture, a particular covenant, is really the charter of authority. It's the binding cohesion of all reality. Um, it's the ordering principle that God has established. Covenant is that binding principle, that cohesive reality that holds everything together. And so this is something we're going to talk about throughout tonight, and I hope I'm going to be able to make it clear, the idea of covenant as sort of this cohesive agent that binds everything together and establishes order and rule. Um, but think about it this way. So God establishes kingdoms 
through the delegation of dominion by covenant. You can go back to Adam and see that God made a covenant with Adam, which established Adam as the king over creation. He has dominion over all creation. And then you have, under the old covenant, God establishes a particular portion of creation, the land of Israel, and delegates authority to Abraham and Moses, but especially to David. And so you see the extent of David's kingdom is the scope of the covenant, the land of Palestine, that promised land. And then under the new covenant, once again with Christ, he is given dominion according to the covenant over the whole creation once again. So there are two covenants that have governed all of creation. The covenant of life in Adam and the new covenant in Christ. Those are the two covenants that have established authority and dominion over the whole of creation. And we live in a time right now, we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, where you have, because you have these two covenants, you have these two ordering principles. Both of them are rooted in God's moral creation law, right? That's the same, the same law for Adam was the law that Christ fulfilled, right? Does that make sense? With Adam, you have sin and the fall. And so you have one covenant order that has the law, but the law is unattainable. It's impossible to fulfill it. It's impossible to reach it. And so it's broken and it's cursed and it's destroyed. But then you have the new covenant in Christ, same law, but only this time the law is fulfilled. And so everyone in the covenant, which encompasses all of creation, is able more and more to live according to the law. So you have two ordering principles of creation, one of the curse and the inability to obey the law, the other of glory and the ability to obey the law. Does this make some sense? Okay. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later on. Um, so we understand that God makes covenants and then through covenants establishes dominion. And so when we talk about the new covenant in Christ, the ratification of the new covenant constitutes the beginning of the kingdom of God. So up until then, you have Adam's covenant, the covenant of life, the curse. Then you have, um, the old covenant with Israel and you have you know the kingdom of God in a way a shadow of the kingdom of God manifest in physical Israel but when the new covenant goes into effect when the blood of Christ is shed and when he is vindicated in the resurrection the new, the kingdom of God is inaugurated it's constituted because the covenant is completed and so the reign begins and we see this this is why after the resurrection jesus says to his disciples all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me that happens after the resurrection once all of the stipulations of the covenant were fulfilled once christ finished the work right christ said it is finished on the cross he was vindicated in the resurrection and so once that happened the covenant goes into effect the kingdom of god is here and jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me and then you have the ascension of christ which is the coronation of christ as the king of the new covenant kingdom so if you guys return to act 1 9 we're going to look at a few passages talking about the um, the ascension of Christ, because this is also a crucial moment in the history of the kingdom when Jesus actually takes the throne, when the heir apparent becomes the king. You know, like there was recently the um, coronation in England, right, where you had the, you know, King Charles, where, you know, once the queen died, he was the king, but it wasn't until the coronation when he really assumed, you know, he took that oath and assumed the role of king. And so it's similar, you know, Christ, yes, is the king, but it's not until the ascension that he actually takes his seat on the throne. So Acts 1-9, Jesus 
calls his disciples to, you know, once again, go and make disciples of all nations. He tells them that all authority belongs to him, and they're to go out to the furthest ends of the earth, proclaiming his reign. And then in verse 9, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So you have this spectacle of Jesus commissioning his people to go and proclaim to the ends of the earth that he is risen, that he is the king, and that he goes, he ascends up into heaven and takes his seat at the right hand. And you see throughout the New Testament that the the apostles saw this ascension as extremely significant. It's not just Jesus kind of going away and not being on earth but it had real cosmic implications of him taking that seat of authority. So if you turn over to Ephesians 1, Paul gets into this a little bit. He says, beginning in verse 19, we are to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So you have Paul explaining there that Christ, after the resurrection, was lifted up, seated at the right hand of God, and there he is above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every other name that is named. That at the ascension, after the resurrection, Jesus takes his seat on the throne and is inaugurated as the king of the kingdom who has authority over all rule, over all powers, over all authorities on the earth, Christ is above them. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2, well-known passage beginning in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you have here, Jesus is acknowledged as the Lord, as the King. He is, you know, at that time, he's you know, dead, resurrected, ascended to the seat of Lordship. God has bestowed on him the title of King, the office of King, after the resurrection and ascension. One more, Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So you have there Paul explaining that... Christ, first of all, what I said at the beginning, the whole point of history is God giving his son a kingdom. And you see it there. All things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. Everything was made for him. And so the reality of the kingdom is that Jesus Christ, by his death, resurrection, and ascension, is the king. He is the preeminent one, the firstborn from the dead. He is the heir of all things, the rightful ruler over all. And what he's doing, uh, Paul says he is reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. That means that what Jesus is doing as king is setting everything right in the universe. He is reconciling everything to himself. 
either through mercy and grace and that heart transformation from the inside out or through judgment and um, destruction of the enemy. All things, though, are going to be tied up, reconciled to Christ exactly as they were designed by God to be. That's the work of the kingdom. That's the reality of the kingdom of God. And because the new covenant is in full effect, right? So remember, the old covenant, there was always more to do because the people were continually sinning. And so they always had more sacrifices to offer. None of the sacrifices ever perfected them. The old covenant was never completed in that sense. There was never any real rest at the end of it. There was always alienation from God. It never reconciled people to God. We've talked about that. The new covenant, though, is completed. Christ is the ones for all sacrifice. He did all the work of the covenant. He obeyed the law perfectly, something that Israel under the old covenant was unable to do. They were never able to hold up their end of the covenant. Christ held it up for us now. And so it is a completed covenant. That means that it is fulfilled. There's no work that's left outstanding. Nothing you know, still needs to be done. It's finished, as Jesus said. And because it's in full effect, the dominion of Christ and the kingdom of God are also likewise in full effect, which means that Christ is the legitimate rule, ruler of the entire covenant domain right now. Does that make sense? The covenant is completed. Nothing else has to be done. That means that Jesus is the king over the entire dominion covered by the new covenant right now. And because it's an everlasting covenant, because the perfect head completed everything, we know that the, the kingdom will never pass away. There's never going to be an enemy that can rise up to destroy it. There's never going to be a true challenge to the kingdom. Nothing can delegitimize the kingdom. Nothing can forfeit the kingdom, right? Israel could forfeit their inheritance. They could forfeit their domain. They were exiled. They could delegitimize themselves. The kingdom of God cannot be delegitimized because Christ fulfilled it already. It's an everlasting covenant, an everlasting kingdom. And therefore... Because the new covenant is for all nations, not just Israel and Palestine, but Jews and Gentiles alike, all the nations. And this really is, you know, the kingdom is a blessing to all the nations. The kingdom of God is a blessing. It's for all nations. That means that the kingdom's dominion includes all creation, which means that all things right now are to be under the reign of Christ. Just like Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So right now, today, as we live, Jesus is the king over all creation and all things, all every portion of creation, every sphere of life, every person on the earth is commanded to acknowledge Christ as Lord. That's the reality that we live in right now, inaugurated by the new covenant. This is the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? You guys able to follow that? So from the time of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the kingdom of God is in effect. All the work of the new covenant is finished. And so Ultimately, in, in reality, there's no enemy left really to be defeated. That Jesus, at the resurrection, defeated Satan, sin, and death. So there is no enemy that poses a true threat. There are still, there's still evil in the world, right? There's, you know, the devil is still tempting. We still battle sin. But Christ won the definitive victory. And so there's no place where Christ is not the proper active king. His victory was sealed at the resurrection. And now the rest of history is that victory of Christ being progressively proclaimed, acknowledged, and applied. That's the rest of history, right? Jesus died, was resurrected. That's it. The enemy is defeated. And now, until he returns, history is the proclamation the application and the acknowledgement of Christ's rule over everything. 
Tony have a question? I thought I heard someone about this. Yeah. I, What's up? figure out how to ask, ask this, but I, I, I understand you said there was still sin in the world, but there's still a lot of evil in the world. Mm-hmm. And how is that the evil is still present if Christ suppressed all that? So the victory was sealed on the cross, but it's still yet to be fully consummated. So when we say that, like, you know, wickedness, death, Satan, we're all defeated, is to say that their victory is certain. It's not in doubt, or their their defeat is certain. The victory of Christ is not in doubt. And also it's to say that we, as the people of Christ, have the power by the Holy Spirit to conquer sin in our life and to push back the enemy further in our generation and time. And so we should have boldness to confront the wickedness that's around us because we know that it can't stand. We know that it's not going to last forever. We know that Christ has already defeated it. And so we can say with, you know, again, with boldness and with courage that, you know, this must submit to Christ, right? Does that does that yeah. answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And so, no, you're good. Thanks for asking, because it's a good question. But like I said, then the rest of history is the acknowledgement, the application, the progress of Jesus' kingship being proclaimed. But it's not like it's not like when you know somebody becomes a Christian, or when you know an entire like when there's a revival. It's not like then Jesus becomes king over that person or over those people. He already is king. That's his, this is just his kingdom being acknowledged by people, right? So when someone becomes a Christian, it's not like they are deciding that now Jesus is king over me. He already was king over you. Now you're acknowledging it, right? Okay. Um, and so, like the... What's up? What about for those that aren't chosen? Jesus is still king over them, okay. um, right? Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Okay. They're just those who are going to be finally exiled from the kingdom of creation, the kingdom of God. They're going to be cast into the outer darkness, but Christ still has authority over them. They okay. still owe him obedience and repentance and faith, right? Um, <clears throat> another good question. So... Like the rest of the elements of the New Covenant, the kingdom is foreshadowed and is promised throughout the Old Covenant. And um, we've talked about this throughout the class, um, that you, know, you have these shadows, these types, these you know, uh, pictures in the Old Covenant that look forward to a fuller reality in the New Covenant. And so all of this works together to mean that the kingdom of God in Christ is no surprise. This has always been the direction of history. All of it was foretold. All of it should have been anticipated. And so the new covenant kingdom is simply the final fulfillment of God's promises that he was making throughout old covenant history. Remember, the, the kingdom of God, the new covenant kingdom, is the point of history. And so... All of history is going to anticipate it and reflect it because God is the author of history and he's working all of it to build and establish this kingdom. And so, again, we discussed a lot of the types that look forward to Christ's kingdom, the temple and the dwelling place of God with his people. We talked about Jerusalem, the city of God, Mount Zion. We talked about David and the victories that he conquered the enemies and how Solomon established rest during his time. And there's that old covenant consummation. So all of that was looking forward. Yeah, building the temple, exactly. All of that was looking forward to the new covenant consummated kingdom. All of us looking forward to the kingdom of God that was going to come through Christ. We also in this class have talked about the prophecies that directly um, foretold the messianic king who was coming, that directly um, were, you know, talking about who this king would be, the servant of the Lord and all the rest of that, right? We talked about all of that. But the Old Testament also has a lot to say about the kingdom itself, not just these elements or aspects of it, 
but the kingdom of God, what it is, and what God is working towards, this final plan. You know, answering the question of what is God doing in history, ultimately. And so we're going to look at several Old Testament passages, some key passages to consider. The first one is Psalm 2. And I I hope that, you know, we'll see how these, because there's many more, but how these explanations of (coughs) what the kingdom of God is work together and how they, they sort of form together this vision of God's kingdom in Christ that then comes to pass in reality when Jesus dies and is raised from the dead. So, Psalm 2, we'll look at verses 6 through 12. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So, in this psalm, he's recording God's response to these wicked nations. You know, it says in the beginning that the rulers of the earth, the kings of the earth, are seeking to cast off God's authority. They're trying to burst the bonds that God has put on them. They're trying to distort and break through God's established creation order. They're rebellious. They don't want to acknowledge their creator um, and their... You know, they don't want to have allegiance to him. And so God's response to the rebellion of the nations is to set his son as king over them. He says that I've set my king on my holy hill, that the nations are going to be the inheritance of the son. The ends of the earth will be his possession and that all the rulers of the earth are going to be called to pay homage to the son, to kiss the son, to acknowledge his authority over them. And so the Ends of the earth, all the nations are the rightful inheritance of God's Son. And what you have here is a psalm that's written in the context of David's Israel, and it refers to Mount Zion and the Holy Hill. But it's clear that David's reign was just a faint picture of what's going on in this psalm. Because this psalm is talking about, you know, global dominance, the nations coming and paying homage to the Lord's anointed one. It's talking about, you know, all the ends of the earth being the inheritance of the king. Clearly that goes far beyond anything that David experienced or accomplished or ruled over. And so what you have is this forward-looking picture of God's consummated kingdom in his son, that God is going to give the son the nations as his inheritance, that God's response to the rebellious nations, the you know, rebellious men who don't obey him, is to set his son as king over them and call them to honor and respect him. Turn over to Psalm 110, another one that's familiar, written by David. Verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And then down to verse 6 and 7. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So... You have, in this psalm, another description of a kingdom that's faintly pictured by David and by his reign, right? David ruled, even though there were threats from enemies, David was a conquering king. But this, once again, goes far beyond what David ever accomplished. The picture of, you know, this perfect dominion where all of his enemies are made his footstool, where his scepter goes forth and shatters and destroys every last enemy. Again, goes beyond 
what was accomplished under David. And so the picture in this psalm is a kingdom that is totally secure, that is completely victorious over its enemies, where there's no threat of uprising, no threat of overthrow, none of that. And so we see the kingdom that God is building and working towards is totally secure. It's a kingdom that cannot be threatened. Um, Next one, turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. And here again, we have, you know, kind of in the context of the expectations of this coming king who's going to establish something, who's either going to, you know, restore the Davidic throne is what many think, but really he's going to come and establish a new covenant and a new kingdom. So in Isaiah, there's a lot of that. Isaiah 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes, excuse me, by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath Of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. <coughs> so... I'm not going to get into all of that, but just a few portions to highlight. Um, there's this promise of a royal heir who's going to be filled with the Spirit, equipped to do all sorts of work on God's behalf. Um, we're told that by his word, by the word of his mouth, he's going to conquer his enemies. And so you have this reality of the, you know, by proclamation the enemies are going to be defeated. He talks about the striking the earth with the breath of his lips. And we know who's the only one who can accomplish something simply by speaking. It's God who can say, let there be, and then the creation must obey. And so you have here in Isaiah this picture of this servant of God, this son of God, who is, you know, has the power and authority of God himself to conquer the enemy by proclamation of the word. And you see also the global scale. He talks about all the nations are going to come and inquire of this king, all the ends of the earth. The whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that there's going to be a um, a kingdom that goes beyond just Israel, but the kingdom is for the entire earth, all of the earth, and that it is going to be brought to pass where everybody knows the Lord and is going to um, inquire of the king. And it's interesting as well that Paul, in the work of Christ, in Christ's work in um, reconciling Jews and Gentiles and establishing one people under God, Paul considers this prophecy of Isaiah that we just read fulfilled by the work of Christ. In Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 12, Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. 
And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And that verse right there, that's taken from Isaiah 11 that we just read. And what Paul is saying is that this prophecy of Isaiah, of this you know, root of Jesse, Jesus, the one who was born from the lineage of Jesse, David's father, that this king is going to rule over all the earth. The Gentiles are going to hope in him. The Gentiles are going to flock to him. Paul sees the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah. That's the kingdom of God. All the nations gathering together to worship and honor Christ. Turn over to Isaiah 49. I know some of this might be dense. Feel free to stop and ask questions if you guys need to. Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. There we have again the word as the instrument of conquest. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In, the, in his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So this is a prophecy that's in the middle of those servant songs describing the Messiah who is to come, the king who is to come. And you have the son who is being called as a servant and he's serving as a second Israel, a a covenant keeper, though, unlike Israel, who broke the covenant. Now you have God calling his son to be his servant, who is going to be the covenant keeper, who is going to be the second Israel, who is going to... Um, not only restore Israel, but who's going to make all creation a kingdom obedient to God. That's what it's saying there in verse 6. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be sent to restore Israel? I'll send you to be a light to the nations, to make the kingdom not just for Israel, but for all the ends of the earth. So that's the promise that's going on here, that you're going to have this second Israel type, this covenant-keeping servant who is not just going to establish a kingdom in this small part of the earth, but over all the nations is going to establish a kingdom. And unlike Israel, whose mission was to stay separate from the nation, to or from the, from the Gentiles, to preserve holiness, you have this servant, this king, is going to go forth and make the creation holy. He's going to make the unclean things holy holy unto God. So Israel was to be separate and to be, you know, to preserve holiness. Christ takes what's unclean and makes it holy. He brings restoration, something that Israel could never do. Does that make sense? Last one we're going to look at, Daniel chapter 7. And this one is just a great picture of the scope of this kingdom that God is building. Um, you know, we see all the elements of it here in Daniel 7. And again, remember the importance of the ascension of Christ when he sits on the throne and receives his kingdom. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. So you have there the clouds of heaven. That's the reminds you of the ascension where they're looking up and he was taken on a cloud into heaven. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
So there, this vision, like I said, it captures the scope of the new covenant kingdom. So you have this vision of now the new covenant is completed and you have this uh, new kingdom established with dominion given to a son of man, right? And that was a name frequently Jesus called himself, the son of man, um, the completer of the covenant, right? The one who actually fulfills the covenant is given dominion. Like I said, it happens up with the clouds of heaven before the ancient of days, before the throne of God. And you have the apostles developing this in the New Testament after the ascension that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, that he is um, standing before God, the ancient of days, and is given this kingdom. So you have this illusion or this prediction of the ascension. This kingdom that he's being given includes all the earth. It says that peoples, nations, and languages will all serve him. It's a boundaryless kingdom. It encompasses all nations. And it's also an unending and undefeatable kingdom. There's going to be no victorious challenger. No one can destroy it. No enemy can uh, is capable of destroying it. it. He says that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So you have this vision of Christ receiving the kingdom, and this kingdom is absolutely comprehensive in scope. It is over all peoples, nations, and languages. It is to the very ends of the earth, and it cannot be defeated or destroyed. And this is what... The plan of God has always been. You see it throughout the Old Testament in different stages, different predictions, different proclamations, that this is what God is working, this is what all of history is developing towards, this kingdom of God. And and all of this was (coughs) completed in Christ. I want to go now to a couple of places in Revelation just to show that these Old Testament predictions, these Old Testament descriptions of the kingdom are fulfilled in Christ. Revelation 1, verse 5, we read, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So Jesus is given the title of the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is established as the authority over all of them. We read earlier, chapter 11, verse 15, that um, the proclamation from heaven, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So you have these, um, these predictions from the Old Testament now being ascribed as fulfilled in Christ, these prophetic visions, this prophetic word fulfilled in Christ, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of the Lord. And then Revelation 19, um, verses 15 and 16, and this is describing Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. You have it there again. This picture of proclamation. The word is the weapon of conquest. From the, you know, Psalm 2, he'll strike them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces. Psalm 110, he'll shatter kings. The passages in Isaiah that talk about by the word of his mouth, he's going to conquer. And then now you hear you have Christ. A sharp sword comes from his mouth to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a real description of Christ's authority. That's not just an empty title. You know, like the King of England, that's almost just an empty title. Not with Christ. When we say that Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that means something. It means that his kingdom is in effect and that all the rulers of the earth are compelled to acknowledge that Jesus is the King. This was all fulfilled when Christ completed the new covenant. 
he became the ruler of the kings of the earth. He became the king of kings and the lord of lords. The nations of the earth became, the, the kingdom of the earth became the kingdom of Christ at his death and his resurrection. And so we see all of this is a present reality. Unlike during the old covenant, where these things were, um, you know, that, that period, all of these were kind of this shadowy, promised future hope. But now, under the new covenant, all of these are realities. They are actualities. They have, you know, gone from this stage of being shadows, promises. These are, these are now realized, um, fulfilled realities. Does that make sense? And this actuality actually binds creation together. It holds all things together. Like it said in Colossians 1, in Christ all things hold together. That now the new covenant is in effect. And so this covenant order is the binding principle of all reality. It orders all reality. And this was realized in the historical work of Christ the King. Any questions at this point? What's up? Oh, I don't want to jump ahead. That's all right. I made a note at one point that you had said, like, yes, now at Christ's death and resurrection that the covenant was completed, mm -hmm. but it's yet to be consummated. Mm -hmm. So when does it, is it consummated? So the final consummation is when... Um, Christ returns, when death is once and for all ended, when there's the final judgment. Okay. But again, it's important for us to remember because sometimes we get in this mindset where we say like, yes, this is all completed, but we're still waiting for Christ to return. Yes, we are waiting for Christ to return. But in the meantime, we are called to take all of this power and authority that's been won by Christ and to go and to make disciples and in so doing shape the world in such a way where it conforms to the, the covenant principles, right? Where the world reflects the fact that Christ is ruling over it. We should desire that and we should be laboring for that. Um, so the question then, and Elizabeth, you also hit on this earlier, who are the citizens of the kingdom of God? Christ is king overall, but who are the citizens of his kingdom, and that would be those who are new covenant members, who are the elect, the people who we would call the invisible church. Everybody who is born again in Christ Jesus is a kingdom citizen. You have all the benefits of full citizenship. That's what Paul means when he says that we are citizens of heaven, that we have all the, you know, just like in in the context that Paul was writing in, if you were a Roman colony but a citizen of Rome, you had all the privileges of a Roman citizen. You had all the protections of the law that a Roman citizen would have, even if you were living away from the 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 central the the central part of the empire and often a colony. In a similar way, though we are away from Christ, who's enthroned in heaven, we are kingdom citizens. So we have all the rights, all the privileges, all the protections of citizens of the kingdom of God. And we exist in reality as it really is. That we, I keep using that phrase and I want you guys to understand, it's hard to articulate exactly what I mean by that. That God by his covenant ordering, has made the world to function in a particular way. That God has created the world to reflect his glory. And now, as people who are in the covenant, we can see that and we can um, live accordingly, that we can uh, actually live in obedience to God's law, that we can live in the world as God intended for us to live in it. That's kind of what I mean by the, you know, we live in the world as it really is, um, you know, with all the recognition of, you know, everything having its proper function. That we're, we're able to make the world fruitful, to make it a beautiful garden the way that God initially called Adam to do. That's kind of what I mean by that. Um, 
anyway. So we live according to this covenant order. And this is why, because the elect are kingdom citizens, this is why the kingdom is most evidently manifest in the church, right? Because the church is the gathering of the kingdom citizens for worship, for the proclamation of Christ as king, for the participation in covenant sacraments, for the exercise of the discipline of the kingdom. The church is the kind of main or at least most evident manifestation of the kingdom in this world. And because it's the gathering of the kingdom people, the church is the center of kingdom work. Um, you know, right? Because the gathered church we feed, we you know, we're fed by the church, we're strengthened by the church. The church does this, it, you know, strengthens kingdom citizens, it equips them, and then it sends them forth into the world to do kingdom work. So the church is very central in all of this, but it's important to understand that the church is not the kingdom. They're not identical. And some people believe or act as though the church is the kingdom of God and everything else is sort of the kingdom of you know, the world or the kingdom of darkness. Not the case. The church is a particularly powerful manifestation of the kingdom of God, but it is not itself the kingdom. It's not the whole of it. It's a place where the kingdom is recognized, a place where the law is obeyed, where its mission is advanced, but the church is not God's entire plan. One thing that's important for us to understand, and we mentioned this earlier, that the kingdom is not the subjective experience of Christians. It's not the personal truth for people who are in Christ. Like I said earlier, it's not people who accept Jesus as their Lord. It's not this, you know, personal, private experience of Christians or the church. But the kingdom is the objective reality for all creation. And that's important for us to understand that there is no place in all creation that we can go where Christ's dominion does not apply, where Christ's rule does not apply. It is the objective reality. It's not our subjective experience. And so all of creation is called to conform to this reality. Um, it's important to understand that something really happened cosmically with the death and resurrection of Christ. It wasn't just a historical event that marked the end of one period and the beginning of another, but there was actually a... Um, a cosmic shift, a new order that was put into place from God the Creator when Christ died and was raised again. A new coveted reality was put in force everywhere at the death and resurrection of Christ. Formerly, there was just Adam's covenant of curse. And the nations were kind of allowed to go their own way. The New Testament talks about this. That, you know, we hear about the nations dwelling in darkness, how God allowed, you know, the nations to kind of grope around in the darkness. The death and resurrection of Christ happens. And again, this isn't just a historical event, but it is a cosmic shift where now there's not just the cursed covenant of Adam, but there's a new covenant, a fulfilled one, a righteous one in Christ. Something changed. And the entire ordering of the universe changed with it. It's impossible to overstate the significance of the death and resurrection of Christ. It's the climax of God's plan. And so if we understand that, then we understand that there is no portion of creation that is not called to conform to this new covenant reality, that all creation is the rightful dominion of King Jesus. And so we can go with authority into every part of the world calling all people everywhere to acknowledge this reality and to be in subjection to Christ the King, to kiss the Son, as the psalmist said. His dominion extends everywhere. Does that make sense? I know that some of this is kind of theoretical, not theoretical, but I don't know, a little bit hard to grasp. It's hard to get our hands around. It's almost hard to like put it into language, but it's important to understand this, 
that the kingdom of God is not just us experiencing the blessings of being in Christ and going to church, but it is the entire created order called to obey Jesus Christ and glorify him and actually be, you know, to do what it was designed to do. And that means people made in God's image, living out that image um, in obedience to God. And so the work of Christians in the world is to advance the kingdom and its claims by making disciples and teaching them to obey. That's our job as kingdom citizens. We are to go forth into the world, make disciples, teach them to obey, and in so doing, more and more of the world is being conformed to the new covenant reality. When people obey Christ and live according to his law, that changes everything. When you have people beginning to obey Christ, it changes civilizations, it changes nations, it changes the world. And so the work of the church, the work of God's people is to go make these disciples and as then they live faithfully and obey, the kingdom of God becomes more and more clearly manifest in creation. And this is one of the um, struggles that we have. Well, one thing again to mention, sorry, um, that we proclaim to all people that Jesus is king, that he is the only way to life, that he is the object of our faith and love, the only object of faith and love. This is all part of our work as Christians, as kingdom citizens, and that Christ will execute perfect judgment on all those who resist his rule. We proclaim all of that. That's part of making disciples. And it's hard for us sometimes because we do live in this tension between the already and the not yet. We talk about that a lot, that there is this tension of already and not yet. That we experience right now today the blessings of the kingdom. We enjoy some of the first fruits of the kingdom, right? The, you know, fellowship with believers and we experience, um, you know, kind of just, you know, some of the blessings and joys of being in Christ, a small taste of what we're going to experience for eternity. Um, we understand that the kingdom is true reality. Um, we also are confident that all of creation will be conformed to the covenant, that all mankind will serve the king. And for those who don't serve the king, again, they will be cut off. They'll be cast out into the outer darkness. That's how you know, the kingdom will finally come to consummation. But right now, so we have all these already realities, but right now the kingdom hasn't been fully consummated. There still is evil in the world. There still is sickness and death and the effects of the fall. The full number of God's elect have not yet been gathered. There are still people who are kingdom citizens who have not yet come to Christ. And also the full wrath of God against Adam's covenant has not been executed. Those things need to happen before the kingdom is consummated. God needs to gather all of his elect and he needs to execute full judgment against the curse of Adam's covenant. And so we do have this already and this not yet. Christ is already king. We already experience some of the blessings of that rule. We are already living in the new covenant order and in the, um, in the, in the creation that Christ does rule over and which he's going to restore. It's going to be this creation that Jesus restores and makes new. Um, already we have all that and not yet there's still sin there are still enemies to be dealt with there are still people who need to hear the gospel there are still areas of our lives where we need to apply the rule of Christ there's still areas in our church where we need to apply the rule of Christ all of that is true and that's the tension that we live in as Christians and yet we are confident because we know that Jesus presently like I said is king and ruler over all things we know that Jesus is a victorious and conquering king that his victory has been sealed on the cross with the resurrection we know that one day every remnant enemy will be defeated in full we know that all creation will function according to the new covenant order and so the finished completed covenant of Christ is our hope and assurance. It's what we look back on. 
It's where we find our hope of our own personal standing with God, not our works, not our feelings, not our own efforts, but Christ's righteousness, his completed covenant work. And it is the assurance of the certainty of God's kingdom plan for all creation, that it is going to be worked out everywhere. Any questions? All right, let's pray. Father, we are so humbled to be a part of your kingdom because it's true, Lord, none of this we deserve. And I pray that you would please help us to live lives of thankfulness, of joy, of rejoicing, and of action, Lord God. I pray that you would please help us to see beyond ourselves, to see beyond our own personal salvation, to see beyond uh, our own subjective experiences, Lord, and to see the broader picture of what you are doing in the world and in history. And Lord, that we would get busy working to advance your kingdom. Father, we are living in a time where it is easy to be shaken, where there is much darkness, much evil that needs to be fought and defeated. And so it's easy for us, Lord, to lose hope, to lose assurance, Lord, to forget that Christ is on the throne and to forget that you are going to be bringing about the resolution of all of this for your glory, condemning every enemy and crushing them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would please keep these truths, these covenant realities in the forefront of our minds and help us, Lord God, to go forth with confidence and to know, Lord, that our labors, our efforts, our fighting against wickedness is not in vain. But, Lord, you are powerful to crush the enemies that we face in our day the same way that you have crushed enemies throughout history because you already defeated the greatest enemy, sin, Satan, and death. Lord, you crushed them on the cross. You vindicated yourself in the resurrection. You are seated in heaven. You are the king. All authority belongs to you, and we are at your command to do your work. And so I pray that we would do it by the power of your spirit, and in Jesus' name, amen.